Well, uh, today, I want to look at, different, at a different angle commitment. The first week, we talked about your yes being yes, that we should be people of commitment. That when we say yes, we actually mean it and we do it. And then last week, we looked at our no being no, that when we say no, we ought to actually mean it and don't do it any longer. But those have both been examples of things that we commit, things that we want to do as people. Today, we're going to look at the entire opposite end of the spectrum and see how God commits. See how God follows with, leads with commitment. I mean, every great leader never asks anybody to do what they aren't already doing. And God never asks us to make commitments unless he's already done it. And he has made the greatest commitment, the greatest sacrifice at all time. We're going to talk about the commitment that he made when he was actually on the cross. In the Old Testament portion of the Bible that was written before Jesus came, in the New Testament portion of the Bible, there was prophecies that were going to be detailing what the Messiah, what God himself was going to encounter when he came on planet Earth. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 17, it says this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Another translation will say, by his stripes, we are healed. If it was written today, it might say, his tattoo declares we are healed. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, it's describing crucifixion. Actually, even before crucifixion was invented, it's saying that, that Jesus took nails, was pierced in his wrists, in his feet, was lashed on the back, wounds, stripes, fleshly ribbons on his back, and this was a sign of his commitment. If that sounds strange to you, Welcome to the club. It sounds very strange to American minds, but we are going to uh, take a deeper look at that today. So let's pray. God, I'm praying that you would help us to see you in fresh ways, see the, the amazing story of the cross, to see the amazing love that you bring to us and your incredible heritage and biography of commitment. I just pray that you would uh, help us to see things like we never have before and to just help my mouth not mess it up. I pray these things according to your, your character that I see in Jesus. Amen. Well, you know, we're talking about commitments, but we could also call this covenants. We don't use that term very often in our society, but that's basically what a commitment. A commitment is a covenant. It's, it's, it's an agreement between two parties. And a covenant is when there's a solemn agreement between two parties. In ancient cultures, all ancient cultures have had covenants. And all ancient cultures mark the covenants with the sign. In fact, even today when we make a commitment, we often want a sign to go along with the commitment. So we'll sign a contract, which is the sign that goes along with the commitment. Or if you get married, the sign of marriage in our culture is a wedding ring. Now, I always feel weird that I'm not, I haven't been wearing my wedding ring for a long time, even though I've been married for 21 years. I haven't worn one for a while. And the reason is, is over the last 24, 21 years, I've had four wedding rings. You know, it's like I gain weight, I lose weight, they go up, they go down. I got this big honking knuckle, it's just hard to get on that. Or I'm on a water rafting trip and I get thrown off with force and it comes off in the river. Or I've lost the beach. And like, I've bought so many, I'm like, man, I just need to take a break for a while until I, actually, my next one I'm probably going to do is I'm actually gonna, probably going to get a tattoo right here. Honestly, I'm thinking think about, think about that, trying to get the right design. That way it can swell and decrease and never come off. Very good stuff. But anyway, whenever there is a commitment, there is a sign that goes along with that. And in ancient cultures, when a covenant was made, the sign always included blood. 
The sign was always one of blood. And blood signified the consequences should the covenant be broken. And so one of the covenants we see in the Bible is the covenant that God makes, the commitment that God makes to Abraham, who is the seed startup, if you will. His seed will be the genesis for the nation of Israel, which is to be a blessing to the world. And God comes to him and forms this covenant. And later on in this conversation, here's what happens. Look at this, Genesis chapter 17. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant, an everlasting commitment. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The sign of the covenant is circumcision. <laughs> yippee, yippee. Now, today, this doesn't seem like that strange of a thing because many of the males in here, most if not perhaps all, have been circumcised for health reasons or tradition reasons. You can go to South Africa and you'll find witch doctors circumcising boys, signifying into manhood. There's, there's different cultures, different expressions of circumcision, but we have no record at this time in world history of anybody ever being circumcised before this. This is the first of its kind. Abraham says, uh, gets told by God, I want a covenant with you, an everlasting covenant. It's going to be great, and the sign is going to be the skin of the end of your penis has got to come off. Ooh, yeah, at, th at this point, it's okay at any point, guys, if you just want to kind of sit like this, that is entirely fine. As odd as this sounds, as we're going to see in a moment, it was even more odd to Abraham. Now understand again, every covenant in some way, shape, or form has the shedding of blood attached with it. In the, in the book, Christ of the Covenants, O. Palmer Robertson puts it this way. He says, by initiating covenants, God never enters into a casual or informal relationship with man. Instead, the implications of his bonds extend to the ultimate issues of life and death. Dismembered animals represent the curse that the covenant maker calls down on himself if he should violate the commandment which he has made. So the reason there's the shedding of blood is in these ancient cultures, and again, we're having a cross-cultural understanding right now. If you try to jam God into your 21st century understanding, you will not find the real God. You will not experience the real God. So we have to have a cross-cultural experience, see that God transcends modern American culture, and see that throughout all ancient societies, there's been the shedding of blood. And what it signifies is, when I shed blood, whether it is, you know, a, a, an animal being killed or whatever, I am saying, should this happen to me, this should happen to me, if I break the covenant. Deep, 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 deep things. Now, why is this the sign? Why is this how the blood's to be shed? We don't know exactly why, but there's a clue in that verse that we just read before. Let's look at it again. Genesis 17. Anybody who decides not to have this sign or be circumcised will be cut off. Just as the skin is cut off, you'll be cut off. The symbolism here is if you choose to not have the sign and be in a covenant relationship, you'll be cut off. We will have no relationship. And it's interesting, by the way, this is one of the times when women are glad that there's a male bias in the Old Testament, apparently. Glad that this is like the only thing the men seem to have. And I can't imagine why all the ins and outs of this, but anytime a guy was doing anything with that region of his body, he would be thinking of the covenantal relationship, the commitment that God had made to them. A couple things about commitment. Number one, commitment costs. Any commitment that you and I make costs us. That's why we like, don't like to make them. Any commitment costs. If you choose to get married, it costs. 
That's why the message last week when we used sex as an example, that's why we don't really like that because we don't want to make the commitment of marriage to wait till we have sex. It doesn't matter what you say or what the person you're dating says. If you're choosing to have sex, you're not married, no matter what, you're not committed. Someone is not willing to be committed. Commitment always costs. When I was committed to having my kids educated and having them be literate, it meant that I read to them, Libby and I would read to them at night, and in doing that, that commitment, it cost us watching television shows that we wanted to see. That was before the DVR came along. It, it cost us. If you are committed to getting in shape physically, it will cost you cheese curls or co cost you chocolate cake or opera cream pie, whatever it is. Anything you're committed to will always cost you something. And the commitments that God has made to us or that God offers to you costs him his son, costs him Jesus. It costs him dying on a bloody cross. The cross is the blood is where the blood of the covenant that God has with us, where it comes from. Now, it's very common to, to hear in our culture, man, why all the blood and gore with Christianity? Why all the blood with the cross? I mean, it just seems so archaic, so vulgar, so barbaric, so, so primal. And whenever somebody says that, they're exhibiting some of their um, cultural biases of expecting God to do what we want him to happen in our sort of serene, vaccinated, bacterial vats of lotion society to never come in touch with blood or anything. We're, we're, we're communicating our cultural preferences. We have, to, we have to think outside of our modern culture and think of the grand scope, the grand narrative of all cultures and all histories and not just go, oh, it's so vulgar. But on the other hand, there's also something positive when we think that what's with all the blood and we think that this is kind of a vulgar or barbaric. There's, there's a good side to that. Regularly we get questions around here about why does Crossroads not display a cross as a normal piece of art on any building that we own or that we rent? And sometimes it's a, it's a wonderful question that's, that's asked with sincerity and all questions around here are great questions. Most of the time when I get that question, though, I get it from churchy types like, how come cross was a real church? I can no cross around. There's not even a cross over there, you know. And um, I get feisty on that one. I get feisty on that one. Do you realize, speaking of archaeology, there is no archaeological or historical record at all of any cross being displayed in any place of worship until about 300 A.D. If you really want historic Christianity, like first century, like followers of Jesus, you would not have a cross anywhere. And why was that? It's because... In the early years, in the early centuries, those people had seen Jesus as a bloody pulp on the cross. They had been grossed out. They didn't like what they saw. And they didn't want to be reminded of it. They didn't want to be reminded of the gruesome goriness of nails through hands, of 39 lashes of being flogged on the back and seeing Jesus' stripes or his wounds on his back. They didn't want to think of that. They had their dad their grandmother that would tell them stories because they were there. They said, I was there. I saw that. In fact, the cross in that time was, was something that anybody who was disgusting would go on. It was a scene of public hanging. The worst of the worst of society would go on crosses. And so when they thought of Jesus, they knew that the cross, what happened on the cross, was central to the covenant because it was symbolizing the blood 
But they didn't want to be reminded of it. It wasn't a happy, happy, joy, joy thing. The scars of Jesus were things of pain. I have scars on me. I have one right in the top of my head where um, I'm, I'm reminded of every time I put hair gel on or I get my hair cut. And it reminds me of when I was a kid, my friend Mike Arm and I, we decided to go crayfish hunting. Anyone go crayfish hunting in here? You know, If you don't know what crayfish is, crayfish are mini lobsters that are green. And uh, these things grow in creeks. And so we would take our mother's Tupperware containers and we would go down to the creeks and we would just start flipping over rocks to try to find crayfish. Some days you go and you couldn't find a single one. Other days it seemed like there was a crayfish underneath every single rock. And this day we hit the mother load. We were down, we were getting these crayfish and just stacking them in these Tupperware containers. These crayfish were stacked like sardines. And then we did the next thing that just seemed completely logical to us. We decided to go up on the steep hillside and bomb them with rocks. So we went up on the hillside and we're, we're seeing who can get closest, lobbing rocks, doing machine gun, you know, handfuls of rocks. And after a while I said, you know, hold on Mike, I want, I want to see if, you know, we hit any or make sure they're okay. Maybe I was starting to feel a little pity on the poor little creatures. And um, I go down and I'll never forget, I go down on my hands and knees. I'm trying to, you know, put these guys together, figure out what the damage is. And all of a sudden I hear, look out! And I go, what? All of a sudden, wham! This rock hits me right square on the top of the head. Right square. Apparently Mike was trying to see if he could hit the crayfish without hitting me. And he hit me. And I'm, 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 I'm dazed. I'm, I'm stumbling. I, I'm seeing stars. I'm understanding stars in cartoons now. I'm, I'm, I'm dazed. I pull my head down and I see blood all over my hand. And I look up at Mike and Mike goes, and runs away. He runs away. <laughs> and leaves me to myself to stumble up the hill to try to find out how to get to the hospital. I think that, here's another scar I have right above my left eyebrow. I have a scar of when I was running as a preschooler through a friend's house to get my bathing suit on to go in their swimming pool and I fell and went straight into the corner of a coffee table. Another scar I have is right here underneath my chin. I was on the top bunk with a father-dad retreat through Indian guides. Anybody do Indian guides in here? Yeah, Indian guys, and I rolled out of the bunk bed while I was sleeping onto my chinny chin chin. I woke up when I was in the operating room while they were stitching up my chin. I don't know if it's because I was a heavy sleeper or I was knocked out. I think of that every time I see this scar. Another scar I have is right here on above my left knee. I was hanging sheet metal and I didn't have good health insurance and it came down and cut into my leg and rather than pay for it, I went and jammed a rag in my, in, my, in my cut. And there's my scar. Actually, if you keep going up my leg too, you'll find another scar that I'm not going to show you. I have first and second degree burns that happened when I was pouring out boiling hot grease as I was changing out the fryers at Hardee's and I poured it out wrong and it went down all over my inner thighs. Yes, happy, happy, joy, joy. And I also have this scar on my right elbow. A bunch of these scars I'm not going to show you. These are scars of warts that were burned off. I have the wart virus in me and so I burn off warts and they pop up elsewhere and I decide to stop burning them off so they don't start popping up on my nose. So that, I think about that, that whenever I look at this scar. Another one is right here on my left arm. This is when I was riding my bicycle, my one-speed Roadmaster bicycle bicycle down a grass hill and there was pavement at the bottom and I fell and broke my arm. They couldn't set it so they had to operate on it. I broke the same exact arm two or three years later when riding my 10-speed bike, no hands, and I went down and broke it in the same place. And I also have this scar right here on my middle finger. 
I've chosen not to show you the whole hand in my middle finger, but just my middle finger from when I hit a table saw. I was careless and put my fingers in a table saw a couple years ago. I think about that every time. And this one right here as well, on my left pinky. While I was uh, coming down a hill on my one-speed roadmaster, I hit gravel and I went down to my hand and mangled my finger. It doesn't hurt, but it's a scar that I will always remember. And this one right here as well. On my left two knuckles, this is when I had five stitches when I was on my motorcycle last summer, going about 75 miles an hour, and I went straight through a deer and went 60 yards down the road, not wearing a helmet. And these are the only scars I have. I'm very thankful for these scars. Actually, these scars, these five, um, these five stitches on these two knuckles, this is, these are unique scars of all the other ones because on this one, I really wasn't doing anything wrong. I was going five miles an hour over the speed limit, but who doesn't, you know what I'm saying? I, I, deer jumped out. It really doesn't mark me being stupid that day. I just, it was, but all the other ones, for the most part, all the other ones are scars of my carelessness. They were scars of my stupidity, scars of being, an, of being accidental. That's what scars do to me. They called into question my intelligence. They called to question my foolishness. I'm reminded of my foolishness as I look at many of my scars. And this is the way we look at the scars of Jesus. We look at it as foolishness. Why in the world would a guy go to the cross for a crime he didn't commit? Why in the world would a guy who no one has ever leveled an accusation against him of impurity that stuck and had any historical veracity behind it, why would anybody who claimed to be God die on a bloody cross? It's foolish. In fact, the writers of the Bible knew that enlightened 21st century people would say this. And in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says this. For the message of the cross, the scars of the cross, the blood that comes from the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The amazing thing, here's the crazy thing. Abraham bloodied himself, signifying, I am going to bear the consequence of being cut off. And God bloodies himself if there's ever a rift in the relationship. The crazy thing is God says, I will bear the cost. I'll bear the cost. The blood in this covenantal relationship is going to be on me. I am going to flip things. I am going to bear the consequences. Broken commitments, broken commitments carry consequences. When there's a broken commitment, there always must be a consequence. And the amazing thing is while God does this covenant with Abraham and others, where the, the nebulous blood is out there or on you, he now flips it and says, out of love, the blood's on me. And this is foolishness. Why the blood? Why you? You've never done anything wrong. There's always, when there's a covenant, there is a severity and intensity of blood. It's one of the interesting things. We talked about sex last week. It's interesting, it's fascinating to me that when two virgins get married, there is very frequently in sexual intercourse that first time, what? Blood. Blood. In fact, in ancient cultures, you would take the sheet if you were a guy and you would just kind of display that the next day. You would display it like, here is the blood. Here is the purity. There is always a sign for every significant covenantal relationship that happens. There's consequences for these things. There's, there's intense consequences, and God bears the consequences for that. See, if, if I don't really see the consequences for my rebelliousness, for my selfishness, I mean, I know I look real good up here right now, but really, I got issues. <laughs> don't, be, uh, don't be 
fooled by however good I appear or make, try to make myself appear. You know, I, got, I do things regularly that deserve consequences. And if I don't notice or you don't see the consequences or the way that you trend towards selfishness, you trend towards lying, trend toward being about yourself, trend away from God. If you don't see that, then I'm sorry for you. You're just deluded. You're, you're just deluded. You may choose to say the cross is still foolishness, but you honestly, if we really can't see my life is all about me, we're not seeing any of the consequences. Once I begin to see that there is a standard and God is the standard and I break that, I have to believe that there are consequences. And here's what all religions, all spiritualities say. All religions, all spiritualities say you got to work your way to the consequences to get the thing that you desire. Every religion, every spirituality. you got to do this, not do that, believe this to get enlightened. You've got to do this be aware of that. Have that in order to have the brass ring. you got to do this, aspire to this, have that in order to get to heaven. Some bastardized forms of Christianity say that. First, got to do all these things in order to get to heaven. And it's flipped. No, no, no. You don't commit, 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 and do, and do, and then you achieve. No, God says, no, I commit. I start, with, I start by pouring out my blood. Even Buddhism. Buddha, Buddha himself says, I know nothing about God, but I know much about men. Buddhism, the system is that what you do, what you commit to on the front end is you commit to denying yourself. You commit to emptying yourself. You can, you can, and if you commit hard enough, then you can attain what you want to spiritually. This is exactly inverse of how Jesus does it. This is exactly inverse of the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is no first. God says, I lead. I lead. I lead and I commit. And I lay down my life. The book of uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5 in the Bible. It looks as if you might have seen some of these things before or heard this kind of verbiage. Given this as a backdrop, check out this truth that's being uttered. Verse 5 And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He died for all. He, he was the one who was cut off on the cross. He was the one that was, that, was, that was put aside. He died for all. And it goes on. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. When we're about reconciliation, we're about relationship. This is what God's about. He's about relationship. He's not about religion. He's about relationship. And the way God gets a covenantal relationship with him is through the blood of Jesus, through him bearing the consequences. And I love this, 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 this phrase, not counting people's sins against them. You know, we tend to think that, well, God's counting up my sins and someday he's going to open up a can of whoop-ass on me. Yeah, someday it's, it's going to happen. He's counting, he's counting. We, we think that God is sort of the, the cosmic Santa in the sky who when we come to him, he's just going to lay it all out. And there's part, there, there's something there because the Bible talks about a final judgment. There is some sort of final reckoning. But when you are in a relationship with Jesus, it says in the book of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now, therefore now no condemnation. So what this says is, he's not, when I enter in a relationship with him, or if you choose to enter in a relationship with today, there's no condemnation, and he doesn't count your sins and create a tally to throw it in your face later. You know what he does? He counts your sins, and he says, oh yeah, Jesus bled for that. He counts your sins, and he says, oh yeah, on, on, on his back. Yes, that, 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 that's where it goes. 
There's a moment in the cross when Jesus is on the cross and, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is believed where this is the ultimate cooking of the books spiritually, where God cooks the books, turns everything upside down, and transfers consequences from your account, from my account, onto Jesus' back. And in a moment in cosmic time, God looks on sin and says, I can have nothing to do with that sin. And there's some sort of brief separation there. And it says here in the book of 2 Corinthians, describing that, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin. Him who had no sin, him who was only selfless, him who was only generous, him who never really tried to create his own personal war chest, him who never gossiped, made him who was the one pure person as only God could be, he became sin. He took on the embodiment of sin and the consequences of sin and the shedding of blood for that sin for broken commitments was paid for, but not paid for by us, but paid for by him. That's why it says in that verse, we implore you, man, we implore you. When you feel this love, not this religion, not this new call to commit, not this new call to moral purity, but when you see the standard of love that God has led, led, leads with, it inspires. God love, God's love inspires commitments. It doesn't like, okay, I guess I got it. When you get this and when you see this, your life just starts to change. Who wouldn't want to get married to somebody like that? Who wouldn't want to be in a covenantal eternal relationship with somebody like that? You know, when we're in a uh, group of friends, maybe your posse, your group, your people, whatever, you, whatever the hip phrase is. The older I get, the less hip phrases I understand. But whatever that, whatever that is. You ever have this happen where one, people within, one, one person within the whole friendship group starts dating outside of that group? and falls in love, what happens? They extract themselves from that group. They don't like say, I don't want to have anything to do with you, but their love simply compels them to be doing other things and being in different places. And what happens oftentimes to those friends who are left behind? What's ha what happens is they feel abandoned. They're like, what is that about? They're, they're like all feeling that they're dirt. I remember when I was in high school, uh, when I really caught the difference between the Christian religion and the person of Jesus, who has a different perspective on religion than, than I ever heard, because my perspective on religion, as I heard, was that I had to keep doing things to appease the gods. I had to keep doing this and doing that. I had to keep making sacrifices in order to get God to like me. This is exactly the opposite in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. And it actually says this in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And here's the big piece. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This idea of making new commitments over and over, try to be better, try to be more holy, try to be more respectable, try to be more clean, is totally contrary. There's already one sacrifice. Someone's already cut themselves. There's already one blood brother who, who, who drew his blood. And that is Jesus. 
And so when I started naturally changing, it wasn't because I was trying to make a whole bunch of moralistic commitments to improve God. My heart just started going elsewhere. And, and I, I remember uh, I heard about this later. One friend said to another of mine, when the one friend was complaining, like, oh, Brian doesn't do this with us anymore. He's not here doing this. And one friend said, said that, well, you got to understand, uh, Brian just fell in love with God. Thought, wow, I don't think that person even understood the depth of that when I heard about that. But that's, that's true. This is what God does for us. He, he falls in love with us. And when you understand how he's led with love and how this covenant is eternally significant, how he bled for it, bled for you and I, something often happens. Something often comes upon us and rises up within us. Today, uh, we're going to give us the opportunity to say yes. To say yes to various things and perhaps enter into a solemn covenant or make fresh commitments. God, I'm praying that uh, we would not see ourselves, but we would see you, the one who at great cost bore consequences and inspires, inspires today.